Housebroken Clothing and ClassicSciFi.com have joined forces to present the ultimate in classic science fiction-inspired apparel. All shirts are hand-printed here in the USA. Everyone loves the luxurious feel of these shirts. The prints are lightweight with soft inks, making them the perfect combination of style and comfort. Each shirt is unique and meticulously cared for during production. They are then inspected, approved, and signed by the artist himself. All this, plus free shipping. They've got Frankenstein shirts, Night of the Living Dead shirts, UFO shirts, all sorts of shirts. They're great shirts. Check out the shirts today at ClassicSciFi.com. Welcome to the Smoke Film Podcast. This is the fourth episode, and I am Cody Clark, your host. With me today is John D'Amico. Hello. And Jenna Ipcar. Good morning, Dave. All right, so today we are doing things a little differently. We're going to talk about not necessarily a topic per se, but we're going to talk about the best movies we've seen lately. New ones and old ones, probably mostly old ones. I mean, the beauty of watching movies nowadays is you can discover these great old ones just as quickly as you can discover great new ones on like Netflix and YouTube and all sorts of places. Who wants to go first? Who's got a nice little movie that they want to talk about first? Well, I just saw uh, Gojira last night, aka Godzilla, the original. I saw that at Film Forum, actually, which was your exact recommendation. It was good. I liked it. Uh, much moodier, darker than I expected. Um, Had more... you never seen it before? I haven't, actually. I, I mean, like, I've seen clips of it. I remember seeing Mothra on TV, because I remember those two little women who sing that oh, song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mothra, yeah? Like, yeah. I remember that. But, uh, God's... yeah, I never saw the original Godzilla. So that was cool. It was it was uh, definitely just m- more depressing than I expected it to be and less of a monster movie and more of a sort of just depressing H-bomb movie. Do you know the inspiration for it? Besides that bomb specifically, but the like actual incident, it was inspired by the um, Lucky Dragon number five thing, which was um, it was this boat that when we were doing A-bomb tests in the Pacific... This Japanese boat just sort of like drifted into the radiation zone. And everybody on board got real sick. And it was like a big stir in the early 50s because, you know, we had just nuked them. And um, so Godzilla like was kind of a response to it because there's a lot of revitalized interest in just how grotesque the whole A-bomb thing is. And there's also another movie right around the same time as Godzilla called Lucky Dragon Number 5. That was like a very specific factual recounting of it is terrible it's terrible godzilla is like by far the better tribute to that and also um the incredible shrinking man at the beginning when he's laying on the deck of that boat and the radiation hits him and he starts to shrink that's where that came from too they were all the same event i feel like in general actually japanese history is always about this sort of burning and rebuilding which i i think is sort of an interesting historical fact but uh yeah i don't know yeah it it was a cool movie and then at the end of this, actually, they had a guy who came out and um, basically compared the American cut, uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, with this Japanese version, and of course, completely different film, and like, laughably terrible looking. They insert the, this like white guy, totally yeah. just it was, um, his name. It's Raymond Burr, mm-hmm. who is great. I mean, I don't want to say anything bad about Raymond Burr, but it's just this weird, it's this weird like movie on top of the movie. And you can kind of... The thing with Godzilla, I always thought was that it's weird to see the original now because it's so unlike all of the other ones. But when you see Godzilla King of the Monsters, which was the version that a lot of people grew up on, it's a version I grew up on too, you can kind of see the path of Godzilla into camp just in that one version. I feel like it was a big step in making Godzilla this like weird sort of goofy thing. More interesting, too, is that they um, they showed the, the Japanese poster for Godzilla King of the Monsters, and on the Japanese poster, it says, re-edited, now 100 times more interesting. Oh, my God. Which is terrible. <laughs> well, Talk Raymond Burr, he was, something. he was a big actor, though. It was, I mean, it was sort of like star power that got thrown into it, and it, it, just, it just doesn't work. But it's weird. I like the Godzilla series because all of the good movies are nothing like any of the other movies in the series. Like the original Godzilla, there is not a single other movie in that series that's anything like it. And then 
The other one I really like, Godzilla vs. Hedorah, which is this weird... It's almost like that Japanese movie House. It's this That's weird... That's a great like, movie. Yeah, it's sort of like that. It's this kind of like acid, trippy, early 70s um, environmental movie. And like it switches to animation in the middle. And it just does these, these really strange things. And um, there's the other one with uh, King Ghidorah, the first one with him. That's the three-necked like, yeah. Yeah. monster, right? Yeah, the, the triple-necked monster. The first one that they bring him in, I forget the name of it, but that's another one where it has this really um, singular early 60s pop arty kind of look that none of the other ones quite match. So it's kind of an interesting series because all the, all the hits are totally different from each other. Mm. And also the lighting in that first one. A lot of the, the subsequent ones obviously were in color and a little too bright. You know, like it seemed like everything cool was happening in the daytime because they wanted you to see everything. But that first one, it's just you really get a sense of like nighttime, like in those like dark scenes where like the light is just kind of etching out his spikes on like his back. Yeah. Or when when he attacks during the um, typhoon, Mm. which I think is the best part of the movie. And you just you don't see anything. You just see faces and lightning and you hear him. Yeah. That's a really good scene. I was always a big fan of Rodan. That was always the one that really connected with me because what separated that one from like Godzilla, um, Rodan was like a flying monster and it added this like threat of him just using the air to just destroy things. Like him flying near a building and the building just crumbling from like the sheer power of the air. It was almost like it was like insult to injury with the other monsters. Like they have to actually like swing their arm and like bash a building. But it was like Rodan could just like zoom remotely near a set of buildings and the buildings just crumble. When you view it in the context of the other big monster movies, you know, it was like these people have been through so much. And now like a monster doesn't even need to touch the buildings and they just fall apart. So it had this like gut wrenching quality. Like you, you start to like really feel for them, where you're like, ah, oh, that's 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 too much. Godzilla had that impact more than I expected it to. It's like if you looked at a lot of these um, scenes as a freeze frame, you'd probably laugh at like it's the puppets or the expressions. But seeing it moving and, and seeing it in context, like his his crazy wild eyes are pretty crazy and wild, as opposed to being just dopey. I've always thought the slow movement when they really capture that slow movement well. You know, when, with their shutter speed and, you know, just the way that the guy's moving in the suit. When they really get that, like, slow movement where you can almost... It's almost like in action movies where they, like, slow down a punch or something. But, like, that that feels more like an editing thing. When, like, when you're seeing this giant thing and it's slow movement, you know it's, like... It's actually moving pretty quickly. It's just so heavy and so large. And it just has that great thing where you're kind of cringing from everything that's happening. The guy who directed the first handful of them, Ashira Honda, was um, Akira Kurosawa's second unit director, and they were like real good buddies. He was um, he worked on Seven Samurai and all those movies, which maybe is why there's that great sequence in the rain in um, the first one. But because of that, there was always talk until he died of Kurosawa doing a Godzilla movie, mm. and he never did it. <laughs> and it, it gets me. It would have been so good. John, you saw you saw the raid too recently yeah i saw the raid 2 i really liked the raid 1 when i saw it when it came out and then i saw dread about two weeks after raid 1 and it just blew that movie right out of my brain but um since then i've kind of been keeping tabs on the director garth what's his name evans i guess i'm not taking that close tabs gareth Garth, (laughs) Gareth evans yeah wayne and garth but yeah he did this short in vhs 2 that was really sweet and it was like the best part of the movie about a cult and in that short it kind of builds, builds slowly, and then all of a sudden everything explodes at once, which was really, that's what Raid 2 felt like to me. Raid 1 was very different from Raid 2. Raid 2 is longer, and it's it's got a big plot. I was going to say, what what's, what is Raid about? I don't know it. All right. All right. Here's what we're doing. Raid 1 is about this guy named Rama, who's a cop. And he goes in with all his other cop buddies, and they're going to do a raid on this um, building where some bad guys live. And then they fight. And and there you go. And that's your movie. And it's real nice. It's real bare. It's real clean. It's very grim, the first raid. Like, there, there's a lot of just sort of, like, 
ugliness to it, like yeah, 1970s a, Friedkin style ugliness. It's not a good looking movie too. And I, I remember when it came out on like DVD and Blu-ray, you know, how they always do like the Blu-ray reviews of like transfers and stuff. And it got like really low ratings on like the transfer of the Blu-ray and all that saying that it was all like muddy and, you know, complaining about the ISO and like the noise and like, it was just looked like shit, but like it really works like that really works for the film. Yeah. You know, when you're watching it, you know, it's not, there's no reason why it should be at all beautiful. Well, that's pretty much what you get from this one. Ray 2 was really weird. It took me a while to settle into it because it's completely stylistically opposed to the first movie. Oh, no. It's good. No, it's really good. But it's, it's you know what it is? It's Terminator 1 versus Terminator 2. Oh, okay. It's longer. You just saved that for me. <laughs> yeah. That's actually really pretty much spot on. It's longer. It's more polished. There's more of a of a story with a lot of characters that you have to keep straight. And I wasn't doing a great job keeping them straight, to be honest, because I was not prepared for that. It's way funnier, too. It has just structurally, it's very different. There's The people don't feel like they're in the same world as they did in the first one. There, there are like characters who have like gimmicks and like special weapons mm -hmm. you know they, they they have to fight essentially mini bosses who's this girl with a uh, hammer and this boy with like a baseball bat and it's really it, it's like streets of rage you remember that game yeah I love <laughs> yeah. it's what it feels like yeah it's it's strangest experience because it's it's i feel like what to i guess a smaller extent what audiences must have felt like when they went to see Terminator 2 after watching the first one. Because mm -hmm. you are not at all prepared for this movie to be what it is. It's good. I think, honestly, I prefer the first one a little. Because it's just shorter. And that really does a lot for me. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's it's a very different experience. It's It's interesting to see this director sort of explore his margins between these two and between his short and VHS to just sort of, like, tease out where he can work and what he can do well. Because there's some stuff in both of these movies that he just did not do very well. Like, I've not, to this date, not cared about anybody in any of his movies. And that's something I feel like he's hitting the crisis point where he either needs to work on that or accept that and run with it. Which mm -hmm. I think Raid 1 did. You didn't really need to care. And this one you did to an extent, and it sort of dragged it down because I, I did not. Though, though the acting was pretty good. There are a few really good actors in it. It's just, it's not his strong suit. Visually, he's trying to find this style too, and I think I think he's going to do well. He's going to do better with the style of Raid Two going forward than Raid One. Mm. I feel like Raid One was a dead end visually. Well, it's almost like very singular. I think that yeah, Raid Two it seems more adaptable. You can do more. You just do more with with the look of Raid Two. You can take it to different locations. It works in different kinds of scenes. You know, if Raid One had any sentimentality in it at all, it would not have worked visually. Are you glad you saw the second one in the theater? You think it's a theater movie? Yeah, because the crowd was all over it. Nice. It's one of those movies, every time a bone snapped, you could hear the whole crowd. You could hear popcorn mm. flying up in the air. Yeah, it's worth seeing in theaters. Cool, yeah. I've been exploring the the earlier works of uh, Kerry Fukunaga, who everybody adores now for his work on the show True Detective. The, the movies that he did before then were Sin Nombre in 2009, and Jane Eyre in 2011. And so I watched both of those. I watched Sin Nombre first, and that one absolutely blew me away. It's one of those movies where the structure of it, it just flows so well that you don't really want to describe too much of the plot to anybody because the storytelling is so solid that you can start with knowing absolutely nothing about what is going to transpire. And you're just, you're steered through the story in such an effortless way that you don't want to ruin that experience. Um, I guess it wouldn't ruin it entirely for me to say that it's kind of like a, it almost has that like slum dog millionaire quality to it, but it's just more pure and honestly stylistic. Like this just feels like this very singular, creepy gang sort of romance chase thing. How's it stack up visually to True Detective? You definitely see the shots that, like, perhaps uh, Nick Pizzolatto, or however you say his last name, saw it when he watched, like, Sin Nombre. Like, the shots where he pointed it and was like, 
yeah, okay, that's what I want, and that's what I want, and that's what I want. Like, you, you can see the stuff that he definitely carried over into working on True Detective. Like, there's these great shots, especially early on, where, like, the main guy or, like, one of the other sort of main guys will just be, like, sitting, looking at something. And it's just these great shots of him just, like, sitting still, like, looking at, like, something on a wall. And you just see, like, you get a great sense of, like, the entire room. And you really focus on what he's looking at. And the same thing with, like, trees. His his obsession with trees and True Detective and, like, roots and branches and stuff like that. You can see that in Sin Nombre. And you can see that in Jane Eyre. And I loved both of those movies. I, I thought they were fantastic. Like, I... With Sin Nombre, I, that was the one of the two that I thought would be I would like a lot better. Just because I, for some reason, in my mind, I, I lumped Jane Eyre with like all those Jane Austen. Yeah, but like Bronte. Yeah, remakes of uh, like all the Kieran Kira Knightley stuff that like came out, like like the Duchess, and then there was the other one, and like all those weird sort of yeah, like the Pride in, and Prejudice, like yeah. romantic. Yeah. Yeah. So I lumped it in with all that, but it's. It's so it's such different. Such a dark book, honestly. It, honestly, yeah, the book isn't like the Austin ones at all. Yeah, yeah but I lumped that in there in my mind because I thought, you know, Fastbender, you know, romantic lead, and then this girl, and like I thought it was just one of those movies. Um, the thing that threw me about Jane Eyre at first, like the first act of it, is kind of jumbled and kind of difficult to follow, and probably wouldn't be if I had read the book. But like, it feels like they were trying to rectify certain jumps in time and stuff that happens in the book by like front loading the movie like if you can get through like the first 20 or 30 minutes then you're in the clear like the rest of the movie flows really well easy to get through easy to follow but like the front it's like there isn't really much to grab onto you're just kind of watching these events transpire without really knowing much about any of the people and then you it's just, also skipping through probably the happiest part of her life, which is just as miserable, and then it gets worse. You know, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, there's a lot of jumps in time, and if you get through the first twenty minutes, it's just hell of a movie. Another thing I watched fairly recently on Netflix actually was OSS One One Seven. Oh man, the best! Which is wait the sequel? Right? The sequel was yeah. amazing. Lost in Rio the versus uh, Cairo Nest of Spies is the first one. Yeah, the first one not so much, but not the... so much. I mean, it has its moments. You can see what they're mm-hmm. trying to do, and you want it to be so much better than it is. It was like a test movie. It yeah, like. it was like they were trying to figure out what they could get away with and what the even the humor of the situation was. Which is funny because the second one is like just so over the top oh my god it's amazing it's like so i mean and this is like a jean de jardin as basically a, a sort of sean connery um james bond kind of figure uh in the 60s in uh in rio so it's like full of like crazy sexism ton of racism all of these stereotypes about bond movies all these stereotypes about french people as french movie uh, just like really funny. I mean, and, and it's a comedy. It's it's meant to be, and, and it's just so yeah, well. It almost done. has like that Zucker Brothers like airplane naked gun kind of vibe to it. Yeah, it's it's like a like a fun romp for something that's so like misogynistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and racist. You know, like just over the top. And I was never. I didn't like the artist, so I didn't really catch on to how talented he was because I just was distracted by not liking the movie. But you really see how amazing he is an actor in this one in the the oss sequel he's just like he's on he's a star man he's just like bouncing off the walls just hysterical yeah i agree i didn't like the artist either uh what he's great he's been good in everything i've seen him in since what have you seen him in he was in wolf of wall street where was he there the he was the swiss banker oh he was wasn't he i did not recognize him in that maybe because he talks (laughs) <laughs> well there you go he's a good actor did you see grand budapest i didn't see that one yet i did i really liked it really so did you not i liked many things about it but i have never except for tenenbaums i don't think i've ever really wholeheartedly liked a wes anderson movie i think he's stifling and i think like the coldness that people used to accuse kubrick of having I feel that in Wes Anderson's Oh, he's very cold. I don't like that, like, specimen approach he has. I don't like like how overstuffed everything is. I don't like that feeling of being in, um, like, a curio cabinet. And I don't like... I feel like he'll waste his best stuff. 
I thought Moonrise Kingdom was so close to being good. And then it just pulled back. And visually, even, it was so close to being good. There were such beautiful shots. And then he put that stupid Instagram filter over the whole movie and blew the look from it. <laughs> mm. Grand Budapest, though, at least is, I mean, it is gorgeous. It is unimpeachably gorgeous. But he does these, he he indulges in all his little ticks, and he keeps undermining himself. Like, the lead is this disaffected, deadpan, Wes Anderson-y lead. But the kid who's playing the role, I forget his name, the, the newcomer to the movie, he's not captivating enough to pull that off. Well, and see, it's not his fault. It's just not a good, it's a garbage role. I, I thought he actually had the zero, the character. I thought that he was the most interesting of everybody in that movie, mostly because um, I really like that they, they spent the whole movie heavily implying that his story was actually more interesting than than the one that they were telling you. Except that you're getting kind of like the whitewashed European version story, which is very cold and very hands off. And it, it felt like, you know, you're looking at this dollhouse that's been carefully laid. Whereas you have Zero, who they, uh, you know, they talk about him, uh, you know, dealing with like being all of his family dying and like being pushed out of his country and fighting in wars. And now he's here. And the yeah. main character is the white guy who like may or may not inherit a million dollars, you know, like that, that was so interesting. I thought that was way more actually emotional than Wes Anderson usually is. Cause I agree with you. I'm not a big Wes Anderson fan. I like all that on paper, but I think it just, it didn't, it didn't play for me. And also I really liked the way death was treated in the movie, which was that it's always kind of this anticlimactic. It's not like an end to a story. It robs you of a story. I really liked that's that. That's a great point about how he handles death in a lot of his movies, actually. Yeah, I really... That's the thing I like, I think, most about his movies. Mm. And it was probably at its best here. But it just... It didn't play for me. I couldn't... There was nothing for me to latch onto, and it was just... It was... I hate to call things self-indulgent, because I feel like directors should be allowed to indulge. But this one, it felt like there was just no voice in it beyond his... I felt like this was his. one of his one of his more accessible movies for me, though, because I'm not a big I, my I, my understanding of Wes Anderson is that I really don't like his earlier movies. Like anything that a Wes Anderson fan likes is usually the thing that I don't like. Like what? Like I I hated Bottle Rocket. I don't like Rushmore. I don't really care about Royal Tenenbaums. I really like Life Aquatic. And then I really liked Darjeeling Limited. And I've really liked Budapest. I did not like Moonrise. So it's kind of like the complete opposite of what anyone I know who's a Wes Anderson fan. They're always like, oh, what do you mean? That's the best one. Those are new ones. Moonrise is the only one that I actually definitely don't like. Like, I can't stand that one. All the other ones I I like to to love. Like, that's the kind of, I either like it or I love it. Um, The earlier stuff that you mentioned, I I adore Ballarat. I've seen that one like 20 times. I love Rushmore. Uh, Royal Ten Bombs is like, one of those crucial movies that I actually could have talked about in their last episode, like one of those movies that like just got me really into film and made me even want to write and make ones. But um, the thing that I think the problem with Wes Anderson, his coldness when he's telling a story, also he has a, this certain coldness to his previous films that rubs me the wrong way. When I listened to the Bottle Rocket commentary, I couldn't get through more than 15 minutes in it because he's he's talking about the movie... And he can barely remember what's in it. He doesn't even want to be doing the commentary. He's talking about other stuff. It's the it's one of the most insulting commentary tracks I've ever heard. That's interesting because I feel like for all my problems with him, it really does feel like he invests everything of him into those movies. Maybe it's just Bottle Rocket. Maybe it's when he finishes the movie, he just wants to move on to the next one. Yeah. But he is so cold and distant to that movie. And I, I really think that in that movie, you know, it's it's a lot less of the uh, meticulousness that he sort of, you know, when, once he made Royal Tenenbaums, he was off on this, like, meticulousness train of, like, you know, all the wallpaper and all the little tiny things and all the, you know, every aspect had to be this perfect Wes Anderson look. Whereas, like, Bottle Rocket, it was more of its own distinct vibe. And I always wish that he would return to Bottle Rocket and do something a little bit more honest because there's moments in Bottle Rocket, like uh, the scene where like Luke Wilson and Inez, the, the character Inez, they run into like the hotel room and they like have sex and everything. And there's like this great flowing moment moment of like the um, the drapes and then the 
the sheets and everything. That's just this honest, pure moment that apparently he doesn't even give a shit about because it doesn't live up to the Wes Anderson look. Like if you if you saw just that moment, if it wasn't for like the booming Wes Anderson y soundtrack, you wouldn't think Wes Anderson whatsoever. And he's certainly capable of that. Like I love Balarak. I think it's a great movie. And it's it's weird to see a director disown something that you feel is great. He's like um Bresson or Hal Hartley to me, where he has this stylistic impulse that he constantly explores and like with Bresson with that sort of starkness and actually it's sort of the same thing for all of them and Hal Hartley with that kind of like disaffected vibe when it works there's nothing else like it like with Bresson a man escapes I mean you can't you can't imagine that movie any other way and with Hal Hartley trust and surviving desire really that vibe feels essential to them but in all three cases when it doesn't quite line up with the vibe and the just sort of the inner life of the characters feels stapled onto their outer lives. It's it's a disaster to me. And I feel like to me, Anderson is a Hal Hartley who's never made trust, or a Bresson who's never made a man escaped. He's just constantly getting in his own way. Which is why I'm surprised you like him because you're such a fan of messy cinema. Messy cinema? Yeah, I am too. I mean stuff like Mikey and Nikki, you know? Oh yeah. That's you know, top tier for me. I love that movie. I think the thing about Wes Anderson, he never gives himself room to find what a movie is about. Yeah, I feel like that's a really good way of putting it. I think the thing that I love about like the directors that I love, like Vincent Gallo is a great example because whether you like Brown Bunny or not, whether you like Buffalo 66 or not, there's something about him where he feels like he's constantly over the course of the film rediscovering what the movie is about at each certain beat. I think Woody Allen is like that. Woody Allen, that's a and perfect example too, because he'll always, you know, people give him shit for like revisiting themes that he's done before, but he always, if he does that, he revisits it with like a certain different wisdom to it. Yeah, like Howard Hawks remaking Red River three mm-hmm. times. So with, with Wes Anderson, it feels like he has the movie all in his head right at the start. This is how it's going to look. This is the characters. This is all that. And we'll just make it. And then it's done. And then, all right, next one. This is what it's going to look like. This is how it's going to be. This is why, whenever the comparison comes up, which it does a lot in my life, I always like to show Homicide more than The Wire. Because mm-hmm. I think The Wire does the Wes Anderson thing, where it locks itself into a, a mood and a look and an approach, and it just follows that to its absolute limit. And it's good, but it's it has no tectonic activity. Whereas Homicide has some of the worst episodes I've ever seen of a show. But because of that, because of its willingness to just go with sort of the flow of what it's trying to do, it also has moments that are so good and so raw and so unlike anything and so honest that they eclipse, in two or three minutes, they'll eclipse the entirety of what The Wire is trying to do. Mm. Another, just a quick comparison... When you're talking about Homicide and The Wire, it made me think of these two movies, Squid and the Whale, the Noah Baumbach movie, and uh, this movie, Daddy Long Legs, by the Safdie brothers. They're similar. They're about, like, divorced parents and, like, the, the tumultuousness of, like, the kids and everything. And Squid and the Whale, I've, I've loved for many, many years. And I saw Daddy Long Legs recently. And it's, it, it is that messy cinema version of Squid and the Whale where it feels like when you when you watch Daddy Long Legs and then you think back to Squid and the Whale, if you feel like you're thinking back to some like big blockbuster movie almost. Like it just it feels over polished in comparison. Whereas like when I'm watching Squid and the Whale, I don't think over polished whatsoever. And there are moments in Daddy Long Legs that just don't work whatsoever. Like the opening sequence of that movie, it's this really shaky cam, terrible sequence. But in your memory, when you think back to that sequence, you just there's a visceralness to it that only comes through after you've seen the movie. Every time I rewatch that movie, I'm going to be bothered by the shakiness of that beginning. But every time I think back to that movie, when I think back to that shaky vibe, it's almost like this remembering a dream thing where like I'm remembering the emotion of it and not the actual uh, aesthetics, which just kind of disgust me. I, I yeah, it's not th- theoretical to you. Yeah. I think it's pretty on purpose, though, Squid and the Whale and Wes Anderson, in the sense that it's about people that are like that. Like, Squid and the Whale is about these sort of academic, white, middle-class people, mm-hmm. and 
It, it makes sense to me that uh, it is more structured and it is more cold. Same thing with Wes Anderson. I think that's just he picked a type of person that he likes, and every movie is about that one type of person. That's which a, that's a good point. And Noam Baumbach is good on that. In that, you know, I didn't like Francis Ha whatsoever, but I like that he's tackling different kinds of people. Right. You know, I like that with Squid and the Whale, he's got these subjects, and then in another movie, completely different. I like that jump. Wes Anderson, though, he's been chasing J.D. Salinger his whole career. He's been chasing... Oh, absolutely. He's been chasing yeah. the Glass family. But when you really look at the Glass family stories, they're all very precise because Salinger is very precise, but they feel different. The ones that are told by Buddy feel very different from the ones that are told by Zoe, mm-hmm. which feel very different from... I mean, the specter of Seymour hanging over the whole thing. It's just... They're all different personalities. Wes Anderson, I don't think he's capable of that approach to to character that sort of difference of perspective of input i think also i mean jd salinger is very he's very emotional the the glass family is all about love and it's all about grieving and then yeah wes anderson is like he's he's just he doesn't have that maybe he doesn't have that emotional ability or or able is able to express that sort of emotion the same way that salinger could he had a bit of that in rushmore i felt because bombs too, I think. Yeah, when you look at when you look at Rushmore, the comparison I would make to J.D. Salinger is that Rushmore is very much about coping with death, and so is Catcher in the Rye. But they're not overtly about it. But then once it clicks in your head, you're like, oh, duh! It's about coping with death. Like it's it's something that you think back to it, and you're like, oh, that's completely obvious. Like Rushmore, they never shy away from the fact that it's about this kid who suddenly got really super productive after the death of his mom. And like he's going through the emotion of that for the entire movie. And in Catch on the Rye, he's always talking about the death of uh, his brother. Right. And but everybody always latches on to the, you know, him saying phony a lot and like the sort of adolescent vibe of it. But they're not addressing like, no, this dude is getting over the fact that his brother died and this kid is getting over the fact that his mom died. There's enough to distract you from it that you don't really think about it until after the fact. That's how I felt about Lewin Davis. Lewin Davis is so about loss and, and grieving. And, and, you know, you can dismiss him as being a major jerk off, which he is. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I think that there's like a whole level of you have to understand that, that context in order to really get the movie. Mm. Salinger wrote, I mean, essentially every story he ever wrote was about coping with death, with the possible exception of Raise High the Roof Beam. But even that, retrospectively, is. But they they don't feel like the same story over and over. Anderson feels like he's just doing the same thing over and over in different locations. I think from Royal Tenenbaums on. Yeah. I think that's really the Yeah, I feel line. like you got to make kind of a demarcation, because those yeah. first three are are different. Mm-hmm. They, they're like Kubrick when he has those those black and white ones that just you might as well be talking about a different... And that's what got me excited about Wes Anderson in the first place, was that like I saw Rushmore first, then I went and saw Bottle Rocket, and it was different, but it was enough the same that I could see the auteur quality. And then Royal Tenenbaums came out, and I was like, oh my God, this this guy is so much in him. Yeah, like I can't even fathom what his next movie is going to be like. And then it conformed a bit to the Royal Tenenbaums thing. You know, It had stop motion and claymation, but it still kind of conformed to the look of that. And then the one after that conformed to the look before that, etc. See, I feel the opposite, though. I feel like those first movies are all the same. And then they, as they go on, they get better. Well, you're wrong. But, yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> completely hated the, Fox the opposite. One. I hated the cartoon one. I couldn't even finish it. I love that one. It was the look. This is what we were talking about well, last yeah. time, where sometimes looks whenever just it, will... Whenever it's the look, it's like, what, what can you say? You yeah. Know, either you respond to it or you don't. Um, let's bring it back to the good movies, though. I'm going to mention quickly... There's this great documentary on Netflix, uh, which is a documentary about Bob Guccione, which is called Filthy Gorgeous. And Bob Guccione was the guy who ran Penthouse and came up with all that and kind of came up with the look of that, that magazine, too. And a lot of people don't know that the look of that magazine was very artistic. It was very he, he played around with light in a way that Playboy didn't, which was his basically his competition. Like he basically went into making this this magazine penthouse with the intention of let me do playboy but let me make all the pictures like gorgeous and let me make all the the articles way more interesting 
And he was completely successful when he stuck to that. And then over the course of the documentary, you find out he got into these weird, like, business deals where, like, he was he was not a businessman whatsoever. Like, he, he's making these, like, rookie businessman mistakes. And he thinks he knows what he's doing, but he, he clearly didn't. And if he had just stuck to, like, his artistic impulse, he would be remembered way better than he is. And, you know, he was dearly loved by those around him. And you look at his, his his work, you look at these shots from, like, the 70s penthouse and, like, Jesus Christ, if they were a movie, you know, they would be, he would be an absolutely famous director. And if he had gone down that path of just sticking to art, you know, we, we'd have a much different legacy to remember him by. And I really responded to it because when I was looking at his, his photography, it reminded me a bit of, like, what I did in rehearsals and stuff where I was playing around with, like, high ISO meets weird colors that kind of bounce off and sort of mutate because of the high ISO and like all that sort of thing. So it's like, I, I felt like if I were around that at that time, I would have been taking photographs along those lines. And I just felt like this connection to him. And it almost felt like a cautionary tale watching it. Cause like, I'm not really that business minded. So it, was, it felt like a cautionary tale for artists, which I really dug about the movie. How about all those naked women? Yeah, right? Yeah. Boobies and whatnot. <laughs> you guys should see it. It's really good. Anybody else got a, a new movie? I got an old movie. Yeah? I saw uh, the other night. It totally blew me away. Royal Hunt of the Sun from 69. Uh, it's uh, it's based on a Peter Schaefer play who wrote um, Equus and Amadeus. And it's about, um, it's kind of brilliant. What What's going on in my life at the moment is that... <laughs> Uh oh. <laughs> I watched Jaws again recently, and I've been on a big Robert Shaw kick. So I've been trying to find all the Robert Shaw stuff I can. And this was kind of like, I thought it was going to be like second tier Robert Shaw. It is absolutely first tier Robert Shaw. This is one of the best performances I've ever see- seen from him. Really? He's, uh, yeah, he's Pizarro. And it's about um, Pizarro when he first encountered the Incas. And um, it's a true story, or at least a true premise. He. And his his conquistadors kidnapped Atahualpa, the um, Incan king, and kept him under guard for ransom until the until his kingdom filled up this big room completely with gold and silver, mm. and then they melted it all down and turned it into gold bricks. And it's about um, Pizarro, who's Robert Shaw, and Atahualpa, who's Christopher Plummer, and their interactions. And it's real Peter Schaefer because it's really about this guy who came from nothing, who was. Um, he was like an orphan. He was very poor. And it's about him coming face to face with a man who's convinced he's a god king. And it has this really interesting... It's it's ballsy in a way that you just don't get in movies that handle religion anymore. Because it, it, it essentially stacks the Incan belief that Atahualpa was a god who was also a man who couldn't be killed because if you killed him... As soon as the sun, which was his father, rose over the mountains and touched his flesh, he would rise back to life. So it it overlays that theology with um, the Christian missionaries who were along with Pizarro. And it kind of puts their hypocrisy and the Incan kingdom's hypocrisy on blast in this really like late 60s, just don't trust anybody mm. in power kind of way. That sounds good, man. It's great. And it's beautiful looking. It's these... um. It doesn't look like anything else I've seen dealing with this subject. It doesn't look like a Geary or the Mission or anything because it's it's the Incan Desert. Mm. So it's the deserts of South America, which is a really kind of a a whole different look. But the trouble is, it just does not exist in good shape. There's I think there's no DVD of it anywhere. Mm. You gotta you gotta scrounge up an old letterboxed VHS, and it's. It's a shame because it's beautiful looking. And there's these really vivid colors, and there's these moments that um that just feel so fresh even today. There's one scene where it's a massacre of the Inca by the conquistadors, and it's done in slow motion over this um upbeat Incan song. And it's this really like the counterpoint of the music and the and the beauty of the images against the violence. It's really it it it's still fresh. The whole movie felt really fresh and it just felt it felt ballsy. I mean, that's all I can say about it. Just beautiful writing, beautiful dialogue, incredible performances, and just like guts that you don't get. Maybe it's because we're less angry 
mm-hmm. just as a culture as we were. But you just, I feel like you don't get that kind of anger and that kind of aggression in a, in a movie that handles history and, and Christianity and these sort of like touchy topics anymore. Mm. I feel like you would, you would kind of dance around it now. Yeah, that's definitely one to check out. So how did you come across it? How did you get the copy? Just online? Yeah, an old VHS. Um, it's part of my Shawathon, in which I also watch Figures in a Landscape from the year later, from 1970, which was not as good. Shaw wrote it a little bit of it, and it's about um, it's him and Malcolm McDowell, who are escaped convicts just on the run from a guy in a helicopter, hmm. which is a great concept, and it's this really cool stripped-down kind of concept, but they can't sustain it for an hour and a half. Hmm. Royal Hunt of the Sun was much better. Cool, yeah. Check that out. Nice. You got one more, Jenna, and then we'll uh, do some mailbagging. Uh, I saw the Alan Partridge, uh, Alpha Papa, the movie. Oh, nice. In theaters recently when it was out. And that was great, actually. I mean, I love I love Steve Coogan and uh, Armando Iannucci, uh, both of who who's created... The, who's Armando Iannucci? He His did um, Thick from... of It. And oh, okay. in the loop, yeah. and um, I think he writes Veep or produces it. I haven't watched that though, the uh-huh. HBO. But Steve Coogan, this is his long-standing character, who's sort of this uh, radio jockey, TV personality, who's just a major asshole, <laughs> <laughs> which is now like a, a thing. You know, somebody I read a review of it that compared it to being a better version of Anchorman, which I thought was sort of interesting, since it's that character has been out since. 2000 or something is right. when they started Anchor doing Man, it. Anchorman definitely owes a debt to yeah. Alan Partridge. So, I mean, it's kind of funny. Yeah, and it has become a theme of having these sort of shows about, and that's maybe Ian, thanks to Ianucci, but having these shows about assholes, you know, just people that are just right. really dreadful people. But this movie was really interesting because it's so dark um, in the sense that it's about a radio. Um, it's about a radio studio that ends up having a, an employee that comes back in and starts to shoot up everybody, <laughs> and then holds people hostage. I mean, it's like really. I mean, number one, it's basically everything that's happening right now in the news. But then uh, it's just you know they they don't dance around it. It's pretty it's pretty intense actually uh, for this uh, you know comedy character who. Otherwise, spends his time thinking about like you know Thai lady boys, or you know it's like <laughs> they they like really like inject this really heavy dark subject. And so it's almost it, like that kind of like Dog Day Afternoon seventies kind of. Well, like, is it? Is that's it, an interesting comparison. Is it like a real time kind of thing where it's like it is? Yeah, it is real like time a hostage kind of real time hostage situation. But it it never it, it's very much so walks the line of being too dark or um like too funny you know like it when it Mm -hmm. when it hits it's really i laughed out loud multiple times in this theater of three other people (laughs) yeah i gotta check that out he's he's one of those guys where he's like some of the stuff like saxondale i wasn't into and like a couple other things but like when he's on he's he's fucking brilliant steve coogan he's great have you guys seen the trip yeah i love i love the trip that That was so good no i saw pieces of it i liked it but I never finished it. It's yeah, it's worth checking out the whole thing. That's but really I would totally one. recommend Alpha Papa. I think it was only in theaters in the U.S. for about two weeks or something. I, I just like it's just managed Alpha to catch Papa? it. Oh, it's called I think in the U.S. is called Alan Partridge. Yeah, that's what I thought. And the movie is in in the U.K. was Alan Partridge Alpha Papa. Why is it called Alpha Papa? Like AP. What? It's meant to be military. Oh. <laughs> All right. It was good though. I mean, yeah, it it, it really manages to walk that line between. Uh, you know, I feel like dark comedy in, in general is, is really hard to find done well. And I would definitely say that this this does it. Yeah. he. Um, if you guys haven't seen the Alan Partridge character, there's this clip on, you can probably find it on YouTube. Did you ever see the one where he's like at the horse race and he's talking about like the horses at the race and all that? Oh, I have a vague recollection of Are, that. You got everybody, we'll put a link to wherever it is on YouTube, but it's just him covering this horse race and talking about like these weird like horse race names and like it, it's just this perfect thing that like you know obviously Sasha Baron Cohen owes a serious debt to him and it, it's that great like kind of like uh you know at a real location piece but like talking nonsense and talking bullshit like the whole thing and you, you guys just gotta check it out that's a good one I think we and actually the British in particular because they've always been so much more interested in this 
I think we're hitting a point with the dark comedies where the pendulum is going to start to swing back. I think some of them are so aggressively anti-comedy now that you're going to have no response but to be bored of it. And I think it's going to start swinging back. I'll bet, I'm going to make a prediction right now. I'll bet like the classical I Love Lucy kind of comedy is going to make like a big surging comeback soon. I mean, there's certainly actresses, you know, comedic actresses that could pull that off, that kind of thing. Well, I mean, it, it didn't really go anywhere. I mean, Bob's Burgers is kind of like that. But I think these, the like ultra dark comedy thing, it's great, but I think it's on its way out. Like like Louis, I think in a few years, it's going to start to wear off. Because people, in particular Louis C.K., people are so enamored with him right now that they have no choice but to get sick of him, you know? Of course. They put him in that spot. I never liked him anyway, so I don't really care. But this this sort of like, this um, comedy as tragedy thing, I'm calling it now. Give it three years. I think Louis works when there's like a great payoff. Like all the great episodes of that show, the third act, there's just this great moment that just brings it all together. And I think finding that perfect payoff is really, really difficult when it comes to dark stuff. Like when you're when you're going really, really dark, to be able to go really dark and then bring everybody back out of it. Like you really have to be a really good storyteller to take somebody that low and like Todd Solons, I think when he's at his best is so good at that. Always Sonny can do it. Not so much anymore, but maybe the first four seasons or so, five seasons were always Sonny. I think they, they, they really mastered that. A serious yeah, man was my favorite great, black comedy. Yeah. yeah oh, a serious man, man I think good. got it. And then Lewin Davis did nothing for me. Serious Man was just fantastic. I don't think Lewin Davis was doing the same thing, though. I think Serious Man, though, I, I agree, because the dark comedy stuff, Louis can really grate on me, honestly. And I like Louis C.K. It feels obnoxious after a while, doesn't it? Like yeah. It feels like they're, it's self-flagellating after a while. I, I would go recommend Alan Partridge, I think. Does I do it, love, they do it well. I love, I love that show. I thought that show was so good, Alan Partridge. It, the, the movie really, I mean, like the second you think like, oof, too much, like it, it, it knows, you good. know, like that's, and that's like a good black yeah, comedy. Yeah, it's, na- it's the navigation aspect that needs to be there with dark comedy. All right, guys, we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with uh, a couple mailbag questions. And now, a movie joke by comedian Anthony Kapfer. They should make a porn version of the movie Big. It'll have an average guy at a carnival. He'll walk up to the Zoltar machine and he'll say, I wish I were big. The next morning, he'll wake up in the body of porn star Ron Jeremy. They won't even have to change the title of the movie. This has been a movie joke by comedian Anthony Kapfer. Visit him at anthonykapfer.com. K-A-P-F-E-R. Maya wants to know, what are our thoughts on Mrs. Doubtfire 2? There's been a recent announcement of uh, Mrs. Doubtfire 2. How do we feel about that? Did you guys even like the first one? I don't even remember it. Yeah, that's it's one of those movies I saw as a kid that, why? Why would I return to it? It's, it's like making Dunstan checks in, too, for me. I think the first one's actually pretty good. I wrote a piece on about it for the site where like, I realized that it's the perfect movie for teaching kids about divorce for one thing this i ran into this thing when i was working at the video store a while like years and years and years back that that movie went out more than any other movie kids that would rent that movie would rent it multiple times like every couple weeks they would just keep going back to it that that was our most rented movie in the entire store and i think the reason why kids went to it it's kind of no bullshit when it comes to divorce but it doesn't go over the line and take it too dark where it's really just kind of like yeah, mom and dad don't get along, so they shouldn't be hanging out with each other. And that's how it is. And it sort of, it steers you through it for, like a lot of these kids in the neighborhood where I was, worked at the video store, a lot of them were like kids of divorce and stuff like that. And also, the, the thing that I like about the first one is it's kind of like a superhero movie. And once I interpreted it as that, that's when I really fell in love with it because it really has that superhero origin arc you know, which when done well can be great when overdone and uselessly done, like in a Batman where it's like, dude, we don't need to be told that we get it kind of thing. Um, with this one, you know, he, he sees the need for him to have this super suit that allows him to do what he can't do in his, you know, quote unquote human form. 
And it really just does feel like a superhero movie when you watch it, thinking about that. I have two thoughts about that. I will watch it then if they put Blade in it. (laughs) And two... Blade versus Doubtfire? Yes. Two, I never understood that name, Doubtfire, because that's such an intense name (laughs) for, like, a kid's... Two awful concepts, doubt doubt and fire. It sounds like, first of all, no man doubts fire. Second of all, that's (laughs) That's a great name for a... That has to be the name of like a... (laughs) That should be a Game of Thrones name, I think, Doubtfire. It should be like the Lannisters versus the Doubtfire. It's such like a gorgeous name, and it's it's very strange in that movie to me. Even when I was a kid, I always always noticed it. I was like, Doubtfire. You have to write a film noir called No Man Doubts Fire. It could be like a Mickey Spillane novel. Yeah, it's perfect. No Man Doubts fire i think i only saw that movie because i love robin williams as a kid which was like i think just because he was the genie in aladdin but i don't see what there is i mean i think you have an interesting point about it i i'm with john though i don't remember it really and i don't really care yeah i really don't know what they could even do in a sequel to that movie besides like hey dad still has this cross-dressing habit and uh, right well (laughs) the, the thing that worked about the first one was what I just sort of imposed upon it where it worked in this unintentional way where like, I don't even know that they set out to make the perfect movie for a kid to watch when they're going through a divorce, but they happened upon it. And clearly it works because I saw it go out like crazy. Did you see the, the this unintentional superhero movie thing? What are the chances that's going to come up in the sequel? Probably not at all. You know, so it's going to be a generic thing. Did what were you, you see say? the internet yelling at the little girl from the first one, the girl who played Matilda? The internet like blew up at her because she said essentially what you said, Jenna, which is that she doesn't really see that there's anywhere for there to go to make another one and she doesn't really have any interest in it. So then like, I guess AP picked up that story or whatever. So entertainment and all them were were tweeting and posting everything about how um, star of Mrs. Doubtfire blasts the <laughs> sequel plans and like slams the studio oh my God. and she's just this like she's like all right she's just this 25 year old woman or whatever is like i don't really want to be in mrs doubtfire too yeah and it turned into this frankly i wouldn't want to be in mrs doubtfire too no either. absolutely not it yeah, seems like the, the bill murray thing you know where they're just bringing out these these sort of people and and just you know bringing parading them out uh you know out of their old shed their retirement home just well, yeah, so they can make money people out of the swamps yeah you know? I feel like with, robin, with robin williams they're always trying to make him work they're always trying to make like something coalesce that like he's the guy he's the guy that we're supposed to love and i've never felt that affinity towards him popeye it's the only time I ever did. Yeah? I loved him in Popeye. I'm trying to think what I even... Like, I've liked him in things, but I, I never really loved him in anything. I loved him in Aladdin. <laughs> He's great in Aladdin. But they're doing this across the board now. It's the same thing with The Lone Ranger. I mean, I really liked The Lone Ranger, the old TV show. I got into it, I think, like, late. I got into it in college because it was a perfect hangover show. Because <laughs> it's just very soothing, and it's kind of pretty, and, like, the bad guys always lose. So it's not bad. So I'm probably the only Lone Ranger fan under 65. Right. When they announced that movie, like, who gives a fuck? Yeah. Why? The license isn't worth anything. Just make an original movie. Yeah. Battleship, I thought was a really good movie, but it was tanked by the fact that they tried to hammer it into this franchise that, first of all, doesn't exist. And second of all, who gives a shit about (laughs) Battleship? Well, it feels like a lot of those movies are being greenlit by what you just said, 65 or older executives that are like, oh, yeah, Lone Ranger is a thing that exists, right? All right. Yeah, let's do that. Or Battleship exists. Yeah, let's do that. John Carter was the big one, too, because John Carter, those are beautifully written books and they're a lot of fun, but they've been done 9,000 times in 90,000 forms. So you either got to just go for broke or not do it. And then John Carter tried to, they tried to play on the name of it, but it was the name of a semi-popular 65 years ago, generically named book hero. Nobody knows who John Carter is. And That's some guy at a bank. It's, didn't even it's meaningless. fucking call it John Carter of Mars. Yeah, they, they called chickened it John out. Carter. It so sounds nobody like it would knew be what Denzel, it was about. It nobody ca- knew what it was about. It sounds like it would be like one of those Denzel Washington movies like John Q or like whatever where yeah like john some, carter doubts fire yeah that, would be, that sounds good <laughs> i'd watch that john carter doubts fire yeah, yeah they drag that. these these old licenses out of the goddamn swamps and the gutters and they pretend like they're worth anything green lantern i mean like 
we all all of a sudden pretended we cared about Green Lantern. I liked the logo. That was the only thing I liked about Green Lantern. That's the only thing anybody likes about Green Lantern is that that little green logo on the white dot on like the green background. It's a great little logo. It works. Other other than that, who the fuck cares about the character? All right, let's move on to the next question. Uh, well, this kind of touches on what we were talking about. Steven asks, why are movies so goddamn terrible all the time? <laughs> There's a weird, the weird sequel. I think we've all spoken about this, the sequel phenomenon. I think that, yeah, it's, it's about this. Nobody has original ideas or nobody's interested in green lighting or putting a lot of money behind original ideas. And then you end up with, I don't know, this sort of like art house movies are the only things that are coming out that are about like people, you know? I fundamentally disagree with that. Really? And what's, I what's fundamentally come out recently? Disagree. Uh, Gravity, I thought was brilliant. I know you didn't like it, Cody, but Gravity's, I thought it was brilliant. Gravity Pain and Gain it. was a goddamn masterpiece. Spring Breakers was incredible. Spring I mean, Breakers you could just rolled. go down. Twelve Years a Slave was a phenomenal film, and it was the type of film that everybody. The thing with Twelve Years a Slave was it was the same thing that happened to Paranormal Activity. Everybody acted like it was part of a trend, and it was not. After Twelve Years a Slave came out, everyone's like, "Oh, another fucking slavery movie." When was the last one? <laughs> Amistad in 1997. Yeah. It was this really groundbreaking and I thought really innovative and technically marvelous movie that it couldn't have been done a few years ago. I think movies are in a great state right now. I think I'm, I'm so I'm just even like, the ones I don't like, like Inside Lou and Davis. I'm really glad it was made. I'm really glad that somebody's making something that personal, even if I didn't respond to it. I think the thing, though, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, like Prisoners, I loved actually last year. Which I don't think, you know, that was, that, that was like great. No that was original. Press, no attention. But every time I hear somebody talking about it, they're like, no, it's really it was good. That was in the meanest movie I've seen in a while. I, I like, I like yet, mean I movies. I that one out. Super mean. But, I, you know, I think what, what gets me down is just seeing all of these uh, sequels for all these superhero movies, for all these crappy animations that, that end up being the top grossing film for forever. You know, like, and, and when you see that, it's like, man, there's so many better things out. Well, but, but they always when you hear that. the When you hear the Marvel thing, like, they made that announcement that they, they've planned out all their movies through, like, 2025. And you're like, oh, my God. Like, it's just... Oh, fuck. <laughs> it's just daunting because it's like... I've been waiting for the superhero thing to fucking go tits up, but it hasn't. And now they're committing to like for the next 10, 15 years. And they keep making these dumb superhero movies. Like where's freaking Wonder Woman? You know, like, like they come out with the What's Don't the one with the, the fucking Wonder Woman? With the tree okay. and the raccoon is coming out. But Wonder <laughs> Woman is too <laughs> weird, you know? But yeah, the what's history, that one? The Galaxies one? Yeah, yeah. Guardians the of the Galaxy. The film, though, I mean, it, it's it's exaggerated now because the, the cost of everything is so inflated. But the history of film has always been that there's this strata of just sort of like whatever bullshit at the top tier and it just it doesn't matter it's yeah, white noise most I mean, movies are you go back to the 60s you had yeah there was the the early 60s when they were rocking um to kill a mockingbird and gray movies like that there was also cleopatra was riding even the new hollywood era everybody thinks that was a totally different form of filmmaking it really was not that different the same year you had um in 69 or 68, you had, I mean, you had Dr. Doolittle, which was just this huge, overinflated, costly piece of shit. And you had, into the 70s, I mean, Star Wars, the year before that, you had goddamn Logan's Run, which was terrible. Don't let anybody <laughs> tell you otherwise, because it's really bad. Yeah, Logan's Run's bad. Except and for our Damnation girl. Alley. Our girl is in that. Oh, though. Jenny, I got her. Oh, my God. What an incredible human. <laughs> Damnation <laughs> Alley. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just... Movies are as bad as you let them be, you know? Just, like, don't let them... Don't let them in if you don't like them. This is essentially the piece I wrote in response to Greg's piece. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you really think all movies are terrible, then you gotta reevaluate where you're at, not where the movies are Right, at. it's your criteria. I see what you're saying. I think where I fall in with it, I think 90% of everything is not that great, and you have to sort of make it great by how you interpret it. And then there's like the cream of the crop 10% where it just really, really works. And you see that. What do you, you mean make it great by how you interpret it? I think you have to look at things in a certain way where you have to. Everybody has sort of like this tunnel vision where like when you're looking straight forward, those are the movies that you really click to immediately. And then like as things go into your peripherals, you kind of have to like meet it halfway. And then like all the stuff behind your head, like it's just stuff that you're never going to get into. And that's what I mean. Where like 10% of the stuff 
that comes out is really going to align with you, whoever you are. And then you sort of have to meet things halfway at a certain point and sort of think to yourself, all right, maybe this isn't something that I would naturally gravitate towards, but there are things in it that I like and stuff like that. Yeah, I agree. Because yeah. um, I feel like a big thing, maybe this is why movies are terrible now to some people. I feel like a lot of people now go into movies looking for a fight. You know, and I feel like there's this sense that movie, when you go to a movie now, it's like a goddamn job interview. And there's no sense of sort of like seeing what the movie is, seeing how it works, seeing how how it sort of gels with you. It's this sort of like impress me or like get the fuck out kind of thing. This is, I bring up Battleship because I don't, it, it was not a great movie, but it was, it was solid. And it was absolutely not the movie that everybody pre-decided it was going to be. You know, how many people didn't even see it and said it was stupid? It really was not stupid. It was very smart. It was a lot smarter than... Peter Berg directed that, Yeah. Right? He's he's good. Yeah. He, he's done some good stuff. There was a lot of... What they did with the aliens in that movie was really interesting, for one. There was this sort of sense that um, they weren't really villains. It was all sort of just a stacked set of miscommunications. There's mm-hmm. a lot of really interesting stuff going on in that movie that people just closed themselves off to. And yeah. the same thing... Another one I always bring up for the same reason, Paranormal Activity. Paranormal Activity, everybody responds to it like it was this processed, out-of-a-mill, out idiot horror movie. It was not. It was something one guy like you or me or any of us made in his house for $11,000, and it was stone-cold terrifying. And if you go into it like an asshole wanting to fight it, you're not going to like it. The other, the other big thing, I think, if I could give movie advice... <laughs> I would say make a point every now and again to go see a movie that you think you're going to hate. Because if you don't do that, you will never find a movie that you didn't know you were going to love. I agree 100% with that. Absolutely. And, and that, that- I, it runs contrary to the way most people watch movies, which is they want this sort of um, echo chamber. But get out of the echo chamber. I didn't think I was going to adore It's Complicated. I love that movie. You like that movie? That movie was so good. I never saw that one. Yeah. And it's one of those ones I didn't think anything about it. I just like, I went to it with a friend because she wanted to see it. And yeah. I, I loved it. And if you really are so dead set on staying in your box, then go make a movie. You yeah. know, if you feel like there's not enough movies that you want to see, and go get a camera and make a movie that you want to see. You're probably the person that should be making a movie. There's like yeah. great, my favorite thing is the Roz Talks Manifesto, which is what influenced uh, The Simpsons and a whole bunch of other great art that came out of the fact that, you know, one of the crucial parts of that is... If you don't like something, you probably should be making it. If you don't like pop music, you should probably be a pop star. If you don't like how movies are, you should probably be a filmmaker because you're going to add something, you're going to contribute something that's going to be, it's going to improve the art form and take it in some direction. You know, when you're repelled by something, whatever it is, it's probably because you're seeing something that isn't being represented within that specific thing. It doesn't mean that. You should go off and be some avant-garde musician because you don't like pop music. It's like, no, be a fucking pop star. Write pop songs that you do like. Come on, people, make a movie. (laughs) All right, so last question, quick one. Uh, Chloe asks, if you could pick any entire album of music to make a movie over, which album would you pick and what would be a dope thing you would make happen in that movie? All right, that's too long. All right, basically, (laughs) what's an album you would like to make a a movie based on? Drive-By Truckers. Has have this album called um, Southern Rock Opera, which is about the rise and fall of the American South as viewed through the lens of the rise and fall of Leonard Skinner. Oh, man. That is dying to be a musical. Songs are great. There's a lot of meat on its bones. It's got this real strong voice, this like really good nice, Southern yeah. voice that's kind of, you don't see a lot of it anymore. That's a good choice. Yeah. All right, you, Jenna. How about, uh, you guys know Gary Wilson? Who was like some dude who lived in his basement and made an album. No. He's like a really bizarre guy. You should look him up. He recorded, I'm trying to remember the name of his album now. One of his songs like 6.4 equals Makeout or Chromium Bitch. Like it's his, number one, look this guy up because he's he's insane. He has it sort of like, you know, Daniel Johnston, like right, weird weirdo. Outsider in his, art. Outsider yeah. art kind of thing. And he's so sincere and he has the greatest album cover. Hmm. And I would just love to see like, I would love to see the sort of inside of something like that. Yeah, let's get like a, 
almost like a biopic, but it should be really visual. It should have that kind of like... Yeah, it should reflect the... Jodorowsky kind of like, yeah. you know, everything's a meta- metaphor. <laughs> yeah. So I think my choice, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Andrew W.K., I Get Wet. His first <laughs> album that is dying to be like a musical or rock opera or something. It just... Like, that's a... He's really held up. Like, people still love him. People still just love his vibe. Yeah, I think it would do really well. I th- I just think it, you know, just shape it into a story, you know, maybe change the order around a little bit, but I think that'd be a great fucking movie. Not DMX. What you listeners may not know is that I'm sitting right now next to <laughs> Cody's sprawling DMX collection on his shelf By sprawling, me. he means two CDs. Actually, a lot of those old DMX ones would probably work because... You know, me and me and John D'Amico love that movie, Belly. I mean, Hype Williams doing like a DMX album as a movie. That would be pretty awesome. All right, let's close things out. Thank you for listening. You know, subscribe, rate, do all that stuff that's helpful on iTunes. A lot of people have been doing that, and that's wonderful. And uh, we'll see you soon. Any parting words, guys? Yeah. British Pafé just put 85,000 movies on YouTube out of their archive. Absolutely. So go to YouTube. Old newsreels and all sorts of nice stuff. You got to check that out. How about you, Jenna? Parting words. Parting words is I'm totally going to go check that out, like right now. Yeah. <laughs> sounds pretty damn good, right? I, I, I looked at a couple of them already. They were pretty awesome. And my parting word is I'm going to check out more of those because <laughs> I enjoyed what I saw. And I know there's more because it's like 85,000. So there's got to be some more. All right. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.